0: Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM.
1: Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined as always by my co
0: host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hello, Jason. How are you? Ah, uh, pretty good. We've reached uh, episode eight. How are you? Uh it's it's good. It's exciting to be at eight. We're talking before the show uh how even fortnightly the weeks just just uh race up. on by. That's right. Uh, so uh, yes, we got a a, a big show today. Big show. Um, uh, but we we're going to start with some pre flight checklist items as as we do here on liftoff. I think that's good. And this was a we're basically going to retell the story of some emails we saw uh this week. But I thought it'd be fun to talk about it uh, on the air because I'm sure my thought is that one person has a question that you know more did who just yeah. didn't email. Um, and so this question is from from uh, Nathan. Uh, and talking about, um, uh, Icy moon, Moons, Icy Moons, uh, which is the, the, your band name now, I think you're Jason and the Icy Moons. It could be, it'd be good. Uh, so we're talking about Icy Moons that may have water in between layers of ice and yeah. how that could be possible if, obviously if it's cold enough to have big sheets of ice, why would some water remain liquid? And I, uh, your answer to it in the email was good, so do you want to share that with the uh, the rest of the class?
1: Sure. Full credit. I, so when I wrote this story for Yahoo about the icy moons, um, uh, I was talking to Emily Lactawala from the Planetary Society, who we're going to hear from later, hopefully. We, we're trying. She's in a meeting now, but hopefully at the end of the podcast you'll be hearing from Emily directly. Um, and we were talking about places for life in the outer solar system and why Europa and Enceladus are relevant because they are... They are watery bodies. They've got water water under the surface of the the you know the thick ice shell, and also I'll point out um, I, there's a there's a really good story about uh, about Europa on uh, Ars Technica um, that that we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, but it made a point that I think it's it's worth repeating, which is when we talk about like three miles of ice over the the surface of the the ocean in Europa, you know that's not like ice that you can hit with a like a like a little uh like a like an ice crusher in your refrigerator <laughs> at the temperatures in the outer solar system it's like steel so right. getting through it kind of hard but underneath it um you've got liquid water it is warmed up by uh the tidal forces uh pulling on the on on the moon by jupiter and um and ideally bo- both that and enceladus around saturn you know you've got a rocky we think a rocky uh, floor to the ocean and thermal vents, and that's what's making that that water liquid instead of uh, instead of ice because the the cold from space is counterbalanced. There's an equilibrium counterbalanced by the warmth coming from the inside of the moon, and you get liquid water. So Nathan's question is Ganymede, which I mentioned in passing because Emily mentioned it to me that Ganymede probably has a very large ocean too, but it's not as interesting. And the reason it's not as interesting is it's completely. Um, Surrounded by ice. It's got ice above and ice below. And, and Nathan made a great point, which is, how could that be? And it's funny because Emily actually made that point to me that she's this good in our interview, which is um, at the top, you've got it, It's cold. So there's ice. And then there are the tidal forces that uh, that send warmth into the system and you've got liquid water. And then when you get really low down inside the the, the, the core of Ganymede, what you, where you get to below the liquid water layer is the pressure has built up to the point where uh, above a certain pressure, even at higher temperatures, ice forms. So it's, it's water under high pressure. Uh, the, obviously, the freezing point changes, the point where they become solid, where ice crystallizes and becomes solid. Um, and, and she actually said it's a little bit Kurt Vonnegut wasn't entirely wrong when he talked about Ice nine. Ice nine is not a thing in um, Cat's Cradle if you haven't uh, read that book, but it that's a, that's a whole factor in it. I just did a podcast about cat's Cradle. that in the show notes too um but ice nine doesn't exist but there are like ice variants these ice crystal variants that form under high pressure and it's weird stuff but that's what's down below uh, the ocean in ganymede is another kind of ice so you've got kind of traditional ice above except really frozen solid and this weird weird material that is um, under pressure ice down below and that's the story. It's pretty weird out there in the outer solar system, is what I'm saying. It's really weird.
0: It really is. I will say this Ars Technica article has the fa- my favorite subhead I've seen in an article on the internet for a while. All is landing on a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty pretty accurate. I mean, you read this stuff and I think that's where a lot of people um where the disconnect forms is that it's just how hard this ice is. That this ice can form mountains. Uh it is so solid, which is you know, like you said, not not what we see here. So uh, not again! Uh, add this Add this moon to the place that's not very nice to visit. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, so we're gonna now uh visit other planets, other planets. Uh, and you've got a link in here about uh a birth of uh of a new planet.
1: Yeah. So th- this is a it's kind of a neat story. Um, a couple of astronomers. Um, let's see. It's it's uh Kate Follett. And oh what's what's the other the other name? I, I can't remember the other name. It's a um it's one at Stanford and one at the oh Steph uh Steph Salem and Kate Follett found uh at the University of Arizona and one of them uh, moved on and now is at Stanford. Um they so when solar systems form, uh there are we, we know we think we know a lot about how solar systems form, but it's always better if you can see it. It's always better to get the evidence. And so they found a star about 450 light years away and uh, we're analyzing its spectrum trying to find basically the signs that it's that a, a planet is forming that it's cleared out. it's got a disk and it's got a cleared out portion because this is how you we think uh, uh solar systems are formed is the, the the sun in the center forms and collapses and pulls a lot of stuff in on its own gravity and forms this it's its star and uh and then planets uh, start to coalesce and they clear out a lot of the space and you're left with sort of a star and then some, some empty space, which has actually got planets in it. And then you've got kind of a halo of, of junk. That is what we would probably, you know, ends up being things like the, the Oort cloud where it's just kind of the leftover junk at the edge of the solar system and the Kuiper belt maybe. So uh, they were looking very specifically at the star, which they felt like had, had this, this disc uh, of, uh of junk, the, the, um, looks like kind of like a donut and they were looking for a very particular kind of wavelength of visible light that is a sign that uh, a planet is accumulating material it's basically a a mass of, of matter that is sucking in more matter with its gravity and that's how planets form and that's You know, that's how uh, something like Jupiter forms is that it just it it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and anything near it kind of falls into it. And that's how it accumulates gas and dust. And that's how you get planets. So they looked for this very particular signature using two different methods um, because they wanted a confirmation of it. And they totally saw it. So this is good because this is evidence that there is this is a very young star and it, and it's a very young planet. But it's evidence that that in this system that's 450 light years away, not only are we, you know, have we been able since the late 80s and early 90s to spot exoplanets, which is kind of crazy on its own. Now we've got it where they have seen a young planet that is forming. You can actually see the light from the the matter uh that's glowing as it kind of gets sucked up by this uh this gas giant that is orbiting that star. So it's pretty cool. It's really the first uh we could say observation of uh direct observation of a planet being born in uh in anywhere because, you know, we don't see that in our solar system. Our solar system is middle-aged and boring. Um but it we we are seeing it in this solar system. It's pretty cool.
0: Right. And and you know, we're talking about forming and it being new. We're still talking uh, I think the article says like twenty million years old. So again, the the, the timetable this stuff takes place well, on so, is really big.
1: So the 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 uh, it, it's it's actually two million, I think they said years old for the planet.
0: Yeah, the star I think is is about twenty million. Yeah.
1: yeah. So it's a super young solar system, and then this planet is incredibly young in in the terms that not in human terms, but in solar system terms, at two million years. So
0: uh, it's pretty cool. It is. It is cool. Uh, while we're talking about planets, uh, we spoke a long time ago. Actually, I looked it up as on episode zero oh. um, about some exoplanets that may be uh, Earth-like, and uh, uh, and one that we didn't talk about then, but is sort of in that discussion of things that may you know maybe similar to Earth. We have uh, Kepler forty four thirty-eight B, keeping with our naming tradition good, here. Good names, yep. Uh, and there's it, it ties into what we talked about last time about how Mars doesn't have magnetic field to protect it and its atmosphere from solar radiation and uh, all these particles streaming away in the solar wind. And that because of that, the atmosphere on Mars uh, is believed has been stripped away over the years. And it seems like uh, our friend here, 438b, may be experiencing a a similar thing. That while it may be sort of have properties that are Earth-like, that this sun that it Orbits may be blasting it, its atmosphere away. If, if indeed this magnetic field is not there, so uh, pouring out for another atmosphere lost to solar wind.
1: Yeah, unless you've got that sp- a powerful sort of magnetic field and a spinning, which means a spinning metallic core, then uh, you're you're uh, if if there's life that requires atmosphere over a long period of time, it's just not probably not going to happen. This is interesting. This is one of the things when you see people trying to do calculations about how many uh, life bearing planets there might be in the galaxy. One of the questions is about, um, it's about things that are hard for us to measure right now and we're trying to get a better sense of it. And it's things like solar weather um, because there are lots and lots of uh, red uh, red dwarfs basically. The most common star in, in the universe are these low mass stars that live a very long time. And they're not very hot, but you could have planets that are orbiting closer and that therefore are warmed by them but um there's some thought that they're prone to flares and so it may be that those are really great opportunities for there being lots and lots of planets or it may be that none of the planets are ever going to be habitable around those stars because they're putting out too much radiation too many flares and spikes and they're going to toast whatever planets are around them so it's something along with things like uh you know other weird weather that may be coming from uh, the center center of the galaxy. Um, there are you know, lots of things like that that we just don't know. We make guesses about, um, and we're trying to figure out more because it, you know th- this is one of those things. Like you, you look at a planet and you say, "Oh, that's probably habitable," and then you get a better idea of like the weather around it. Uh, just as we talked about about Mars, and you realize, "Oh yeah, you know, with that without those kind of conditions, it would be a lot harder for it to hang on to an atmosphere."
0: Uh, this this article too that we're gonna link to uh, talks about the Earth Similarity Index, which we did not talk about uh, when we talked about exoplanets. But basically, it is a a rating system, of uh, a, a scale from zero to one, zero mm. being no similarity to Earth, and one being uh, an Earth us. twin. Uh yeah. Us. Um, and four thirty eight B is currently rated at point eight eight, which is is pretty high, and you know this may this number may get refactored as this um mm. as you know this the studies and this research kind of comes in as maybe more solidified but it's an interesting way to think about like, the esi rating sort of being a little badge of like you know how how close do we think this is to to where we are right
1: right yeah it's it's interesting to see um you know one of the one of the other funny challenges is is you know we were just talking about icy moons that you know we're we're trying to find earths but there are lots of other things right there are there are big moons around gas giants uh close or far away that might also uh also have life but you know we can only really measure what we can see and so that's that's the challenge with a lot of the kepler data
0: yep uh so we have uh a couple more pieces of uh of news here news. yeah more news. It's it's a news heavy. Uh, news day. is big. Day.
1: There's always stuff going on.
0: It's true. Uh, you know, in doing the show, uh, I initially thought, I like, you know, is it going to be hard to find like relevant news to talk about each episode? Nope, not a problem. <laughs> Turns out, not a problem at all. No. Uh, what's going on with this um, supernova DVR?
1: <laughs> so I wrote down supernova DVR because I was trying to find a metaphor for it, um, and it's pretty cool. So the idea is that uh, that They spotted, so scientists spotted a supernova. This happens from time to time. It's fine. Um, But this one um, was a little bit different. They found it in November 2014. uh, And they found it four times. And this is because of relativity. Basically, there's a galaxy cluster in the way. um, And it's very massive. And uh, so what happens is it, uh, it basically bends the light around it. And it's like a big lens, and it's called gravitational lensing. And this is a this is something that is actually an effect of relativity. Sometimes it's called an Einstein cross because Einstein predicted that there would be bending of light by massive gravity, and uh, and we see it uh, we see it with with many supernova that are far away and other objects that are far away. And this supernova um, popped up multiple times because it's behind this big massive object. Okay, that's cool. But what's really interesting is they've done the calculations and then they they think that they're going to be able to um, see the light from that supernova via some other paths. So the longer the light has to travel, so if it bends on an even larger arc, then speed of light is fixed. So that light will take longer for it to reach us. So this is the Supernova DVR, which is, uh, or if you're thinking, if you're a glass half empty kind of person, it's the Supernova Rerun. Like we already <laughs> saw that one, but uh, but what's cool is you can um, you can uh, look for it elsewhere. And so they, they've they've tasked the uh, the Hubble Space Telescope to watch this area of space because what they're hoping to do is see the. The, the process of the supernova going off. Um, and normally you don't have any warning or you have very limited warning about whether a supernova is going to happen. But if you see it once behind a gravitational lens, you might see it again, because it might that light might be coming from a slightly different angle, bent a little bit longer later. So this is a case where they're basically watching the area because they think they'll probably see it in early next year. They've done some estimations that they may actually get a chance to, to watch it happen. And that, that's a great opportunity because, again, supernovas tend to take us by surprise. So uh it's kind of a fun little story that that using relativity and gravitational lensing we have the ability to see things um not just that we wouldn't otherwise see without the light being bent but actually see them replayed uh, just because the universe has essentially buffered that light for us <laughs> pretty wacky but it's true this is how the universe works so i thought that was a pretty cool story
0: relativity is always is always fun we should do an episode uh, more in depth on on that that sort of side of things because like everybody's really get, head hurt. Yeah, it gets crazy in a hurry. Um that kind of ties into the the next thing I wanted to bring up. This is uh from the Badastomini blog over on Slate.com. Oh, yeah,
1: Phil Plate. Love him. Yep. Everybody should read that blog. That's a great blog.
0: It's really good. YouTube channel's really good. Everything Yeah, he does a great uh, job. It's all it's all great stuff. Uh so it's a, it's an article talking about um taking long exposure photography of the space station as it goes overhead um you know you can get this like really nice streak as it as it as it goes across uh your field of vision and so he's sharing a photo uh from a guy named uh tim ashby uh, peckham from new zealand who took a taking a picture like this during an earthquake (laughs) and so uh If you look at this photo, it looks like the space station is doing some sort of crazy loop to loop. But what it actually is is the Earth moving underneath his tripod, and it's a very uh, it's a very sort of trippy photo. You look at there's like a cropped in version. Um, Yeah, and it's 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 not so much news. It is sort of fun where he talks about maybe we could use the space station as a seismograph. We just (laughs) take pictures of it, and if we know if we see this, we know an earthquake happened, which of course is. Uh, sort of ridiculous, but uh, I got a good chuckle reading this article.
1: Yeah, we do everything we can to stabilize our equipment on the ground, but uh, one thing that you can't do is stabilize the ground.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no not not at all. You know, I uh, I tried taking pictures during the uh, lunar eclipse a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago, or I guess about a month ago, and um, yeah, I you know I did kind of have that thought, you know, I had a tripod up, had a big heavy camera on top of it, and, you know, trying to take pictures, and like you want to shoot even with a remote, so you're Touching the shutter button doesn't move camera, right. but you can't do anything if the ground beneath you is shaking. Yep. Uh, but uh, I thought I thought it was sort of a sort of a fun a fun image. Um, oh yeah. Not not all not all fun of games in space station land though. They did you see this where they suffered a small uh, power failure on the station? I didn't see that. Yeah. So the uh, space station has, as you, as you might imagine. Uh, redundant systems for just about everything and the space station has uh several uh but best understand like power channels uh in parallel and one of them uh one of them has failed there's no danger to uh the crew there's no danger to any missions or anything work is sort of going on uh as normal but it's not like if you if you trip a breaker in your apartment and you you go a little bit back it's a little more complicated than that they actually can't get to it until next year. Uh to repair it, um they actually have to have a part uh that is currently planned to come up on a spacex flight sometime sometime next year, but there there's not even a schedule for that um but uh you know it's uh, seven out of the eight power channels are still working fine, one is down um but it was you know it's it's we've talked a lot about spacecraft and how complex they are you know we're talking about Orion and then building it and testing it these things get tested and built over the course of years and years and years. And uh, when there is a failure, you have to have a plan. And and I think a big part of that on on station at least is redundancy where you have these systems that, Hey, if one falls over, we're still okay. Right. We can still do our jobs. Everyone is still safe, which is the most important thing of course. Um, Yeah. I
1: uh, I, I was reading something about how um, they're really excited about, uh, about how, um, with uh, new capacity, they're going to be able to add a crew member to the ISS. Um, and one of the reasons that's exciting is that that person, although they will probably have maintenance tasks too, that person adding another person's work week into the ISS um, is adding science a hundred percent of science time when you do that. And the, the reason is there's this overhead of maintenance, including like there's a there are, like leaks and stuff that have to they have to like blow air around because the circulation has issues i mean there are lots of these things that just because it's you know space is hard and and the iss modules have maintenance requirements and 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 problems and uh and so you add another crew member and that they're actually excited about that because a lot more science will get done because they, they that will be in addition to the overhead that they all have to do
0: So what's uh, what's up next, Jason?
1: Uh, Pluto. I'm going to go back to Pluto. Yes. Why not? Again, this is part of the brilliance of the New Horizons mission plan where they're going to be radioing back data for a year. So there's always new stuff. Um, There was this uh, American Astronomical Society Planetary Sciences Division had their annual meeting last week. And so a whole bunch of news came out of there. And there was a bunch of Pluto stuff. They have uh, 3D maps of Pluto's surface. And they've got two that are these distinctive mountains that look just like volcanoes which means they are probably volcanoes um of course it's pluto so they're going to be ice volcanoes and they're going to be shooting out things that would be would not be considered rocks on earth but in the outer solar system are rocks and slush so methane and and nitrogen and and water as ice water ice so uh so that's interesting cuz they're cryovolcanoes and cryo volcanoes are fun ice volcanoes um, and they also had some analysis of the age of the Pluto surface, by which they do by highly technical means of counting craters. It literally, an intern, presumably, counts the craters. <laughs> um, and uh, it's funny because crater density is actually a really great proxy for the age of the terrain. It, like the, the more, the older the surface, unless you've got a, a, a dynamic... Uh, Dynamic stuff uh, like erosion and, uh, and, and volcanism can repave, and then you get a young surface. But otherwise, the surface is there, and then it just, over time, collects right. craters.
0: The longer it's there, the more opportunity there is for impact. Exactly.
1: And so, you know, what they found the, on the area of Pluto's surface that they have the highest resolution, that there are very old areas, and then there are some incredibly young areas. So, like, the heart... On Pluto, the right side of the heart, which is different from the left side, it's a different kind of terrain, is younger than the surrounding terrain. But the left side of the heart is incredibly young, like there are no craters there. It, it is it is uncratered terrain, which means, relatively speaking, it's incredibly young. And there's some thought that also in their analysis that it looks like maybe the, the, the left side of the heart is actually an impact basin, that there that it, it's actually ice that has filled up a crater um but it's which is also interesting but that's um that is uh a uh, very young terrain that's the youngest terrain on Pluto. So just a whole bunch of cool stuff and then the last thing just cuz it's kind of cute um there's uh they did some analysis of the orbits of Pluto's moons. Pluto has all these little tiny moons, the little you know little rocks, they may actually even be little rocks that used to be more little tiny moons and they kind of smacked into each other and stuck. Um and they all spin around like crazy like tops. And it's just kind of fun. There's a video of uh, that NASA did of the spinning moons of Pluto. And they all, um, what is it? One of them, um, Hydra, spins around 89 times during one orbit of the planet. It's just is spinning around like a top. Pretty cool. Pretty funny. Pluto is a wacky place. And, you know, <laughs> we just before it was just kind of a fuzzy, barely resolved uh, spot on uh, our best telescopes. And, you know, you fly a probe by it and look what happens.
0: A whole party going on out there. There is
1: crazy stuff. Yeah, Pluto Sharon's got a lampshade on, on her head and <laughs> Nix and Hyder are just spinning and spinning until they get dizzy and they fall down and Pluto's yeah. just, you know, you're breaking Pluto's heart. Ah, see what I did there? Anyway, mm. lots of stuff going on in Pluto.
0: I was just trying to come up with the Agents of Shield joke, but I failed.
1: So we got a little more uh news to go, but I think we've been doing this long enough. Maybe we should tell uh tell people about one of our uh, our good friends. What do you that think? Sounds-
0: That sounds great, Jason.
1: All right. Well, so this episode brought to you by our good friends. See? Uh, At Luminos, Wobbleworks, the makers of Luminos. Luminos is the all-in-one mobile astronomy app for iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch. Yes, that's right. It's been in development for more than a decade. And it brings all the power that you'd get on a desktop astronomy program to your mobile device. So wherever you go, you can bring the universe with you. There are many stargazing apps out there that let you identify targets in the sky. But Luminos goes above and beyond. It creates accurate models of millions of astronomical objects. If you're intrigued by a comet or a satellite overhead, you can tap once, launch your target, and ride along in 3D. Uh, luminos also gives you advanced tools to discover the best viewing targets at your location right now or in the future so you can plan ahead for some stargazing wobbleworks is a family business they have more than 50 years of software experience and they've crafted luminos to delight current astronomy fans and create new ones this is great for you to go out stargazing with your kids and explain to them what they're actually looking at. There are detailed planet and moon maps, tens of thousands of asteroids and comets, millions of stars. There's support for wireless telescope control and much more. You can even view live sky charts on your Apple Watch. So the universe is not just in your pocket, it is on your wrist. Luminos has one low price. There have been no paid upgrades and there are no in-app purchases. Its fifth year of free feature updates on the App Store, WobbleWorks has added more than thirteen thousand precisely aligned deep space images and current and historical meteor showers. There's more all the time, uh, and and more updates are on the way soon. So find out more about Luminos at WobbleWorks.com, and uh, thanks to Luminos and WobbleWorks for sponsoring
0: LiftOff. We uh, we before the break we're talking about dancing moons as a big party out huh. at uh, in Pluto Corner. But um, it might not be the case for one of uh, Mars's moons, it looks yeah. like.
1: It, bad, it's a bad news month for Mars. Mars has really taken it on the chin. Now we know about how it lost its atmosphere. It's getting pummeled by the sun, and the solar wind is just sweeping its atmosphere away. And now comes the news that uh, some some astronomers have analyzed the terrain on Phobos, Mar- Mars' largest of its two kind of sad, potato-shaped moons. They're not the best moons in the solar system. They might be captured asteroids or other debris you know they're not they're not the best right but they're they're all mars has mars is holding on to it turns out (laughs) though here's the bad news um they've seen there are these grooves on the surface of phobos and uh that means it's gonna fall apart (laughs) it's gonna take 30 or 50 million years but it's totally gonna just fall apart into nothing and in fact the the money quote which is from terry herford at Goddard, goddard space flight center um we think that Phobos has already started to fail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get these little moons, they're not too big to fail, they're small enough to fail and they fail. So, um it's 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 bad it's bad news for Phobos, it's bad news for Mars. It's going to get ripped apart by the tidal forces, you know, Phobos's gravity interacting with Mars's gravity and uh and that's bad for Phobos. And I will also point out that um Neptune looking pretty smug over there in the corner. Mars is a sad little collection of moons that are falling apart. Analysis of the surface of Triton, a large moon of Neptune, suggests it is also fractured in this way. Triton is slowly falling inward. Its its orbit is getting closer and closer to Neptune. And it appears that it is probably also going to fall apart and be uh, an X moon at some point in the future. An X moon is not like the X-Men. It's not nearly as exciting. It's just no more moon. It's so,
0: much sadder, actually.
1: It is. So bad news for moons is what we're saying, and bad news for Mars, which already allowed its atmosphere and barely has moons as it is, and it's going to lose one.
0: The, uh, it, the This article about Phobos, um, uh, there's a quote in here, too, that um, the they think that the core of the moon is basically like a, a pile of rubble, yeah. and that it's sort of a cohesive like an outer shell basically just holding it together and that's what these grooves are is that shell starting to get pulled apart like you said by the gravity yeah. interacting
1: it's like powdery uh, really small powdery stuff that kind of coats the surface and so it makes it look like really solid but it's actually very easy to distort with uh with tidal forces because there's you know it's just kind of a bunch of clumps of stuff and not like a really solid attached set of matter
0: right not a uh, not pleasant if you're if you're Looking Phobos,
1: to, if you're Phobos, yeah, don't get any real estate on Phobos. Is what we're saying. Bad, yeah, bad news. Yeah. I don't recommend be,
0: it. Gonna be sad for you if you mm. do that. Um, there was an interview I wanted to point people at uh, over on. Space this on Spaceflight Insider uh, with uh, NASA Deputy Administrator uh, Dava Newman, and she has spent her career doing a lot of really interesting stuff, a lot of like biomedical stuff, working on. Next generation spacesuits, uh, a lot of a lot of work with keeping uh, humans uh, alive out, out in space. And there's a, this this interview is is talking about the uh, journey to Mars plan and a lot of hooks back into what we've has been in the news a lot with the commercial crew program and how that is going to allow NASA to focus on Mars and even. Uh, even beyond uh but even in that having commercial companies sort of side by side with uh with NASA's own first party uh solutions to to get us there and it's it's a, it's an interesting article i'm not sure there's much really new in here but it's really like if you're really kind of wondering like what the play is between commercial crew and what NASA's doing Uh, And, you know, low Earth orbit versus going uh, beyond. I think this is a really nice, cohesive interview kind of covering all of that and all in one place. So uh, definitely worth a read if you're uh, still a little fuzzy on kind of who's doing what in all of this, uh, all this new activity.
1: Yeah, no, it's good to see it all in one place because that's one of the challenges NASA has in telling its story is it ends up with these little disjointed individual stories and not the big picture. So it's nice to sort of have it all laid out about like, look, there is a plan. There is stuff in motion. And here's what it is. Exactly. Uh, I've got one more uh, distant object. Not, not an exoplanet. It's not that far away, but it's still pretty far away. Uh, this was news in the last week or so. Uh, they uh, have, Astronomers have found the most distant solar system object. It's 103 astronomical units away, so 103 times the distance between Earth and the sun. That's three times further away than Pluto is from the sun. It's far away. It's got a super catchy name. It's just VV774103, 7, 7, so it's a catalog name. It's not that interesting. Maybe they'll give it a name at a, at a later date. Um, they, so what's exciting about this is they think that it might be an Oort Cloud object, and uh, the the shorthand for that is they're outside of, of the main planetary areas. There's the Kuiper Belt, which is sort of closer in... Uh, icy bodies, including Pluto, mm-hmm. um, and the, they are influenced by Neptune. The nep- Neptune's gravity has influenced the the Kuiper Belt objects, and then there's the Oort cloud, which is not the idea is not influenced by Neptune. It's a it's a it's material that when we were talking about the formation of solar systems earlier, it's the stuff that's like way out there in the the halo of junk that is is potentially not uh, affected by any planets, and it's just kind of floating out there. But the thing is, this thing's so far away that although they've discovered it and it's an object and it's far out there, we don't actually know if it's going to stay out there. They the, to, do, to estimate its orbit, you have to watch it for a while and then figure out where it's going. And then you can be like, oh, okay, uh, here's what its orbit is. So it's possible that it actually is a Kuiper Belt object and it's just far away now, but it's going to be coming closer. Um, so it's not officially further away Then uh, Sedna, which is another uh, Oort cloud object that was discovered by uh, Mike Brown, Pluto killer himself, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's another, there's a there's a second object. Those are the two kind of known Oort cloud objects. This might be a third, and it might be further out there. So it's a if so, it's really interesting because those are objects that are that we're only now capable of finding, and they are probably left over from. The formation of the solar system so by finding them and seeing how they move and 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 uh, watching them and seeing what they are we get some ideas of solar system formation and uh and that that can that's new information that's the more we can learn about what's out there now the more we can figure out about what you know how it all started and uh and there is uh also a conspiracy theory element here which um i'm going to mention because it's uh Again, probably not aliens. In fact, it's definitely not aliens. Nobody's even saying that. But just a callback to our probably not aliens of uh, of the last couple of episodes. It's also probably not a planet. But there is a wild theory that, again, like the aliens building a, a Dyson swarm, is not likely, but it's possible. Which is one of the things they're trying to do is detect so the, the, the Kuiper Belt objects have this orbital resonance often with, uh, with Neptune. That they're, like Pluto orbits uh, three times for every two times that Neptune orbits the sun. They're in an orbital resonance. Neptune's gravitational influence is felt in those objects that are out beyond Neptune. Um, in the Oort cloud, the idea is, well, maybe there's nothing out there. It's also possible, this is the conspiracy theory part, that there could be a massive object that's out there way out there, like 250 astronomical units. So more than twice as far away as this object is. And this object is three times further away than Pluto is. So super far out in the outer, outer, outer reaches of the solar system. But that is one theory that I think people think would be kind of fun if we could find it, but it would be very hard because it's very far away, would be a massive object, more of a planet-sized object that's way out. Now, you know, the history of astronomy is littered with people trying to find Planet X and mm-hmm. uh pluto was found in a search for planet x and they thought it was planet x and it turns out no it's just this neat little icy body that's got the heart on it and we love it but it's not like this massive object at the edge of the solar system but you know it's a fun thing to say what if there was something out there that was much bigger and unexpected uh way out in the farthest dark reaches of the outer solar system and it's at least possible that there is something out there um and i think that's fun to think about but it's it would be very far away because that and the way we might discover it is by intuiting its existence because of the movement of some of these other objects that are way out in the outer solar system. If they're moving in time with each other, that suggests that something is influencing them to make them move in some sort of pattern in some sort of resonance. And and that's kind of cool even though you know again the most likely thing is there is no planet x out at 250 au's it's a it's a fun possibility i believe they i believe uh, when they uh introduced this at that at the meeting uh, in maryland last week they referred to it as a stealth planet <laughs> 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 which again is fun to think about even though it's probably not there
0: right so they're going to check back in on this uh, i believe in a a year and see if that's enough time to begin to calculate its orbit like you said to see what is it actually doing over time? Is it, is it staying where it is distance-wise, or is it, is it coming back, or is it even moving further away? Right, because so, what uh, you want to
1: know is the closest approach. Like, we know right. the closest approach of Sedna at 76 AU, and that's the question here, is if its close approach really puts it in the Kuiper Belt, then it's a different kind of object. But they're they're hoping that this is another word cloud object. It's just really hard to find this stuff because they're way out there and they're really dark and they don't move very fast. So it takes some very careful observations and uh, clever computer, um, you know, data analysis, honestly, in order to find this stuff.
0: Yep. But it's fun. It's it's always like you said, it's exciting to find to find new things, and especially in a in a corner of our solar system we don't know very much about. You know, we we're talking uh, earlier about the formation of. That new planet. I mean, this is very well could be the remnants of that, you know, happening. Yeah, with this our is solar that, system.
1: This this is out, uh, the outside of the donut, right? <laughs> it's just like the <laughs> junk that was left over that was never swept up by any planet, um, and and that's why it's uh, you know that's why it's just kind of loose out there because it was just kind of the 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 rarefied outer reaches and never got pulled in by neptune or jupiter or you know any of the other bodies of the solar system that are closer in
0: yep didn't it get picked to play on the team yeah it's too bad it's too bad
1: although it's not as sad as phobos but <laughs>
0: that that really has me down man <laughs> it's really you look at that picture it's like oh you're you're slowly being pulled apart pulled apart now i mean we talked before about how the solar system
1: is a dynamic system it's just that we don't see it because on our our lifetime time scales or even our species time scales you don't see it but this is a good example of that where you know, it's uh you know, thus thus passes thus passes Phobos in <laughs> thirty million years. <laughs> All right, so let's get to our guest. Emily Lactawala is here from the Planetary Society. Um I have been reading her blogs and uh tweets for a long time and it's great to talk to her about planets. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Liftoff. It's great to have you.
2: It's great to be here.
1: So um, I think we should probably start, I mean, you, your background is interesting, um, and I, I was kind of curious about how it 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 connects to the Planetary Society, because um, you started sort of doing geology stuff, and then also with some education stuff, and as an outside observer, it's like, well, of course, this is where she ended up. But before we get to, to that, I wonder if maybe we should talk a little bit about the planet, Planetary Society in general, like what it is and what it does, if that makes
2: sense. Sure. Absolutely. So the Planetary Society was founded 35 years ago this month uh, by Carl Sagan, Bruce Murray, and Lou Friedman at a time when uh, planetary exploration, people were super excited about it. The Vikings had recently landed on Mars. Um, the Voyagers had flown past Jupiter and Saturn, and Voyager 2 was on the way to Uranus. And so people were just really jazzed about space exploration, and yet the federal government was talking about actually shuttering NASA planetary exploration. And so the organization was founded in order to to advocate for space research and exploration to say, yeah, the public really cares about this, so we have a big advocacy goal. And then we also are all about educating the public about space research and exploration, and we try to develop some new technologies that could facilitate Future exploration.
1: That's cool. So it, it's it's planetary society, but it, it's really about exploration of space in general,
2: of and, of the planet, of our solar system, of, and and right. we're really driven and supported by our vast membership base. We're the largest space interest organization in the world. We have about fifty thousand members right now, all over the world. And um, so we really want to represent the voices of all those people who want to go to space, either themselves, you know, in the future or just virtually through robots. I I think all of us um, in the society uh, just believe that it's fun and interesting and educational and inspiring to go out there and explore strange new worlds.
1: We're all supportive of that. So I mentioned your background. So, So geology um stuff in college and then you also did some education and community outreach um and i am just wondering how, so how did you get to this point how, what led you to being um the sort of editor writer blogger for the planetary society
2: Sure. Well, I've, I've always loved science, and I always figured I would do something involved with science. But I can't say I've ever loved the idea of being a solitary sort of researcher. And so um, my dad was an art historian, he was an academic. And often, uh, we spent so much time as children in art museums. And I love science museums as well. And I saw the behind the scenes of art museums. And so I kind of imagined that I was headed toward a career in a science museum, maybe, um, either as, as a researcher at a science museum or helping to develop exhibits at a science museum, generally telling the, the public about what goes on in science through a, through a museum. Um, and so when I was in college, I took Uh, geology my very first semester while I was there because it was the one science that my high school hadn't offered. And it just turned out to be a spectacular department at the college that I went to Amherst College in Massachusetts. And they did geology in the fall in New England with the trees and we were outdoors a lot. And it was just so much fun. I just fell in love with it. Um, Because it's, it's a field of science where you're looking around and looking for evidence of what happened in the past. And that evidence is very thin, there's not a lot of it lying around. And so a a lot of geology is creativity and storytelling to fill in all of those gaps. So um, at Amherst, the geology department tend to bring in people from the art department and history and English, all these people who liked stories and were also mildly interested in science. And so it was just a real fun, diverse um, department. And I love geology. And then uh, I went on to uh, just straight out of college, as many college kids, too. I, I taught science for I taught school for a couple of years uh, before going into grad school. And it was there that uh, my my fifth graders did this space simulation project. And I just had this, I don't even remember how it came to me, but I was like, huh, I wonder if you can do geology (laughs) on other planets. And it turns out you can. And so that's uh, what I went to grad school to do. And um, I just, uh, I was fairly fortunate to find this job opening when it appeared at the Planetary Society. It was just a perfect union of my interest in um, space geology and my interest in talking to the public about it.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen the, um, you probably have the, in, from the earth to the moon, there's that episode where the, where they take the Apollo astronauts up, the geologist takes the Apollo astronauts on a, out into the desert and up in an airplane. And because it turns out that, you know, although they're really good at, at, uh, flying aircraft and, and being astronauts, um, going to the moon is about geology. And that always yeah. blew me away. Cause I, I find geology complex and strange and really alien as a subject. Um, And I had never really thought of it that way, that it's like, hey, you know, it's great that you're astronauts, but geology is going to be important because you're going to another world.
2: Yeah, you know, there's only one geologist uh, in the Apollo program, and that was uh, Jack Schmidt, who was on Apollo 17. And he was he's the one that if you see like uh, a video of all the Apollo astronauts falling over on the moon, it's mostly him falling over on the moon because (laughs) he was a geologist. He wasn't the flyboy. But the field of planetary geology in the United States basically started when NASA asked a whole bunch of Earth geologists, hey, we've got these Air Force pilots that we're sending to the moon to pick up samples. Can you guys train them? on what they need to know in order to know what to pick up when they're up there. And so that generation of planetary geologists is still around. It hasn't been very long that this field has existed. And and they're the ones who trained the original Apollo astronauts to recognize their anorthosite from their basalt.
1: Isn't that the, sorry, Star Trek nerd here, but that's Farouk Elbaz, who is honored in a Star Trek episode as one of the people who, I think, trained the astronauts about what rocks to look for. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, one of many. My own advisor yeah. at, at Brown University did the same thing.
1: That is cool. Um, that is cool stuff. So, Stephen, um, we're not just here to talk to Emily about her background, but about space. <laughs> so, I wonder if you want to hit her up on a on a, uh, on a particular planet that we've been talking about, who looks it, like it's going to lose its moon. I, I told you we're yeah. not supposed to talk
0: about Phobos. We're not supposed to talk. It's we, too sad. It's too sad to talk about Phobos. We just had a session about that, and then you like yeah. don't bring it up, and then you brought it. Now we're all sad again. Yeah, I um, know. I mean I think I think a lot of people who uh kind of follow uh like what you guys do and and sort of this this whole uh subject uh, obviously Mars is at the forefront of everyone's mind with uh crewed missions at some point but but right now we have a lot of uh, exploration going on there uh both on the ground and and uh, in orbit around Mars um what, what do you see as sort of the, the next step there? Are, are there steps in between us and, and having uh, a crew on the surface? Uh, what, what sort of things are kind of building blocks from your standpoint until uh, we get there?
2: Oh, for sure. So um, I think Apollo is actually a very good model. You know, they didn't land astronauts on the moon in their first mission, they, they did a series of steps, they, first, they went around the moon and back, and then they went into orbit at the moon and came back. And then, you know, so they went through all of these smaller steps before they uh, finally got around to, to setting astronauts down on the ground. And you're going to have to do the same thing at Mars. We've never brought anything back from Mars. We've never sent a ship to Mars and brought it back, much less have we gone to the surface, picked, up a sample and brought that back. And so if your goal is really to put humans on the surface and bring them back, then you really need to do that autonomously first. You need to demonstrate all those technologies that you're going to need to get up off of the Martian surface, which isn't easy. It's a big planet, has a lot of gravity, um, and then uh, successfully depart Mars and come back to Earth. So that's why I think a lot of people see Mars sample return as a necessary precursor to human exploration. Um, but there are some people who don't see it that way. And, and Mars exploration with humans gets a whole lot easier if you don't plan on bringing people back. <laughs> and uh, NASA would never do that, but uh, private companies would. So that's when, when people ask me about this, that's why I think that private companies are probably going to be the ones to put people on the surface of Mars first, because they're not going to deal with all of those complications of having to launch the people back into space and then bring them home.
0: Interesting, you know, it's uh, obviously that sort of conversation is is sort of big out, out in the the wider culture right now. Um, do you, you know, I think NASA said we're looking at the 2030s uh, for that sort of activity to be taking place. Um, do you think that that is uh, something that we're going to see in that in that time frame, or do you think that this is going to kind of be something that's always just around the corner?
2: Yeah, it's both Mars sample return and human Mars exploration is always, you know, two, three decades in the future. But recently, the Planetary Society actually got a group of experts together and said, Now, let's be real. Let's figure out what we can do within the budgets that we have with human exploration on Mars to do something that would make sense that would advance our goals. Um, and is not something that would be forever around the corner. And the idea that the, it's actually not, it's not an original idea. It's an idea that's been around there before. But the, the idea that, um, this group said would be realistic is to launch people and don't land them on the surface. You put them in orbit around Mars. You, you possibly even put them down on Phobos. Um, you know, Phobos is going to be around for a long time yeah. and we can do a lot of interesting things there while it's still around. Um, we'll just feel then, bad yeah, about <laughs> but the advantage of that is, you know, if you think back to early lunar exploration, the Russians had this absolutely incredible rover program in the 70s. They drove so far, and they didn't have autonomous robots like we have now. They joysticked them from Earth, and they could do that because the distance between Earth and the Moon is not very big. And so it, it's fine for the radio signals. There's not really a very big delay. And so if you could put human brains in orbit around Mars and have them teleoperating robots on the surface, it would be way more efficient way to explore the surface than we currently have now. You would take advantage of the human brain, but then you wouldn't have all of the complications of having to build a habitat and maintain the habitat and not die and get the people back up to the uh, up to orbit and back to Earth. You you just have the problem of getting to Mars orbit and getting out of Mars orbit back to Earth, which I don't want to diminish. It's not a not a small problem, but that's a much more doable thing than putting people on the surface.
1: And then you're in the relatively cushy position again, relatively speaking of of being in your spacecraft and 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 not having to descend and come back up and deal with the uh, the what's down on Mars you're just up there in orbit
2: right and and another good thing about that is that you're not contaminating the surface of Mars with all of the the um you know uh, carbon rich gunk animals bacteria yeah. viruses that that humans would bring all with the them
1: all the garbage that we bring all with us all the
2: garbage it's a lot of garbage
0: this week's episode of Liftoff is brought to you by NCH and Andrew Carroll. This is a simple ad about a difficult thing. If You work for yourself, you know that paying taxes can be a nightmare. You have to understand how all the paperwork and tax stuff gets into place, and the last thing you want to have to do is to deal with it when really all you want to do is take care of your business and make the things that you love. And it's really easy to mess it up or to pay too much in tax. If you're a freelancer or you have dreams of being a big independent content creator like Jason or if you're just trying to just settle it down and and try to deal with all this tax nonsense, there's a message for you. Uh, Andrew Carroll is a CPA at NCH Tax and Wealth and he's a he's a big fan of all the great shows. He's actually our accountant here at Relay and he has written a new ebook called The Freelancer's Guide to Escaping Taxes. It's all about uh, how to understand what you need to do to make sure you're being efficient and effective with how you deal with taxes, how you deal with your money, and making sure you have all the proper things in place to avoid issues down the line. And it's really geared to making sure you only pay the tax required and not anymore. Andrew believes that business should be simple, so he's made this free guide for people who want to learn how to make their own freelance tax life easier. It breaks down how to simply and legally reduce your taxes with step-by-step instructions anyone can follow. Hey, look! This stuff can be complicated, and Andrew can help with almost anything related to business, taxes, or investments. But if you're a freelancer or you're doing uh, side work, or have a side project somewhere, go grab this free guide right now. You can check it out at CPAAndrew.com/relay, or you hit him up at CPAAndrew over on Twitter. Thank you to NCH and Andrew for sponsoring Liftoff and all of Relay FM.
1: Uh, so when when we talked for a story I was writing uh, the other week, uh, we were talking about the outer solar system, and I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that a little bit. Um, there was an interesting story on Ars Technica in the last week about Europa. You mentioned the influential congressman and the chairman of uh, of the committee that controls the funding for NASA uh, when we talked. Um, and there's a lot of excitement out there about about the outer solar system and and water and in Europa and Enceladus. Um, Realistically, what are our bets, best bets right now in terms of exploring the kind of the out, the outer solar system and the moons out there?
2: Well, for the outer solar system, it, you know, unlike the discussion we've been having about human exploration, um, there's no technical hurdles to continuing exploration of the outer solar system. It's all about the money. So um what we can do, whatever people envision out there, and they've envisioned a lot of exciting things. Right now, NASA is working on developing a Europa mission. It wouldn't orbit Europa. It would orbit Jupiter and do a lot of flybys of Europa. Um, there's also been proposed orbiters or flyby missions to Uranus and Neptune following up on the Voyager discoveries. There's been some really cool ideas proposed: a boat for Titan, a balloon for Titan, um, a spacecraft that'll fly multiple times through Enceladus's plumes and and figure out what's coming out of its oceans. So there's a lot of fantastic ideas out there. Um, another one: uh, 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 a spacecraft specifically intended to study Io's ongoing volcanic eruptions. There's there's so many ideas of things that, that we can do, and it's limited only by the budget.
1: Is one of the issues uh, that um, we've got these. It's not called faster, better, cheaper anymore. But we've got these sort of like limited budget space missions that we're that that they've got a program for. But it's hard to get to the outer solar system on that budget.
2: That's it's part of the problem, but it's not the biggest part of the problem. That that program that you're talking about, NASA has sort of a, a portfolio of different sizes of missions. There's flagship missions that cost you know, two-plus billion dollars. There's new Frontiers missions, which cost about $1 billion, and there's Discovery missions that cost about half a billion dollars. And they're supposed to do more Discovery missions and and then only one flagship mission per decade. And that was working really spectacularly for the 2000s and, and in the the current decade that we're in. But NASA's budget got squeezed, and they suddenly weren't able to keep up the pace. And so uh, there was recently a selection of Discovery missions that um, was the first in a long time, and it may be the only one for a long time. And that's not really how it was supposed to work. It's really limiting the diversity and the variety of what NASA is able to do in the solar system, so that we're contracting now away from, you know, NASA has been exploring the outer solar system since the launch of the Pioneers continuously. And as soon as Cassini crashes into Saturn in 2017, that exploration is going to come to an end for at least a decade, uh, which I think is really super sad. Um, And I no matter what we do at this point, there's going to be that gap, and and I think that's kind of terrible, and so it, yeah, it you know it does have to do with the fact that it's hard to get to the outer solar system on that small budget, but that's only a small piece of the problem.
0: I mean, do you, do you think that that is a problem that that Congress or that funding can solve, or do you think that this is sort of the end, uh, the unfortunate end of an era of exploration, and that is now a chapter that is closing?
2: Well, we can solve the problem of. Uh, not having enough of these smaller missions very quickly with just a little bit more money, um, we can't solve the gap in outer planets exploration even with money at this point. Um, but we can make the gap shorter. And so, um, and we're we're not really talking about in term in federal government uh, standards about a ver- very much money. We're we're talking about changes in bu- budget of you know just a couple hundred million dollars, which is a lot to me, but <laughs> it's not it's not a lot to the federal government. Right. And so, and just increasing it by you know 200 million would make an enormous difference in the cadence of, of how often we're able to do missions.
1: But at this point, the lull is going to happen, whether we whether we like it or not, because there's stuff that's just not on the books right now.
2: The lull in outer planets exploration will ha- will happen. Mars will remain continuous. We're doing a very good job of continuously expor- exploring uh, asteroids as well. So, um, but there's going to be a decade where it's basically just Mars and asteroids and hardly anything else.
1: Would you say that you're optimistic that 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 lull is going to going to end and we're going to pick up the pace?
2: I think so. Um, and one of the reasons is that we no longer have to depend entirely on NASA. There's, uh, Europe is going out to Jupiter with, with a big mission, um, launching in 2022, I think. Um, and we're now have India has an orbiter at Mars. China's looking at sending an orbiter to Mars. Um, these other countries, they can't get beyond Jupiter right now because nobody el- except the U.S. and Russia has radioisotope thermoelectric generators to, to power things, um, farther from the sun than Jupiter um but in terms of the rest of the solar system there's a lot more happening with other countries really filling in the gaps that the americans are leaving behind um and it's it's really cool to see you know a chinese lander and rover on the moon and to see uh, europe's amazing uh, venus express mission that was so successful and and actually we have a, a japanese mission that's approaching its its second attempt to enter venus orbit in a couple of weeks and i hope they succeed with that
1: are there are there places that we should be talking about that 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 we're not whether it's the scientific community or maybe it's the public consciousness I mean obviously so much has been driven by um uh, you know, the stories of, of uh, I would say the, the stories of, of water and possible life on Mars in the 90s sort of dr- drove uh, some motivation and storytelling around reasons we need to look at Mars. There's been this capturing, I think, of people's imaginations about water in the outer solar system with Enceladus and Europa. Are there, are there other things that you would say on your li- are on your list of really interesting uh, places to explore that, that uh, people don't think about?
2: Sure. You know, I think um, right now there's some momentum building toward a a mission line that would explore uh, oceans in the solar system. And that includes the places you mentioned, Europa and Enceladus. But it would leave out... uh, most of the, it would leave out basically all of the moons of uranus and neptune it would leave those systems out entirely and i think that's pretty sad because one of the amazing discoveries of the last 20 years has been all these stellar systems so many extrasolar planets thousands of them and one of the most common kinds of extrasolar planets are neptune and uranus sized planets and we've never even studied the ones in our own solar system and that's hampering our ability to understand what's going on in these worlds outside our solar system so if we want to follow up on all of these great exoplanet discoveries then we really ought to send a mission that can go explore uranus and neptune um and those two worlds would be left out of a framework that focused on oceans in the solar system
1: yeah, uranus and neptune i mean they they have the one what voyager flyby yeah and that's and that's it and and back and then we we thought of them as more as gas giants where now i think the consensus is that they're very different kinds of bodies than jupiter and saturn
2: you're right. They are very different. They're, they have a completely different kind of thing going on internally. And they also have very interesting families of moons. Um, Uranus's moons were seen only very poorly by Voyager 2. It had the same problem at Uranus that New Horizons had at Pluto, where the whole system was kind of bullseye on. So you don't get to fly past more than one of the moons. At, at Uranus, Voyager 2 flew past Miranda, and we have some very good pictures of Miranda, but we don't have good pictures at all of any of the rest of the moons. And now that New Horizons has flown past Pluto and seen Charon, which is a really interesting world. I desperately want to go back and see, um, with a better space, you know, better instruments, a closer flybys, all of the interesting moons of Uranus. And then out at Neptune, which is farther away, so it takes a lot longer to get to, Um, But out there, you've got Triton, which we're almost certain is a large Kuiper Belt object that got captured into Neptune's orbit. And so if you were to do an orbital mission at Neptune, you'd actually get an orbital mission to a Pluto-like world. So that would be pretty cool, too.
1: Any – is is it crazy? I've been – my imagination has been captured by this idea of – having a balloon sending a balloon into the atmosphere of venus because there yeah. are interesting things in venus is that a is that a total uh, pipe dream kind of thing or is that a plausible scenario
2: Absolutely not. It's totally plausible. They've developed prototypes at JPL, and there's a number of reasons you'd want to do that. One of the, you know, Venus, we all know it's very hot. It's uh, very toxic. Um, It's very high pressure. You go down to the surface, it's like the pressure a mile below the surface of the ocean. It's so hot it melts lead. It's awful. But if you're floating in the atmosphere in a balloon, you know, as you go up in the atmosphere on Earth, the temperature drops, right? And the pressure drops also. So you can float at an elevation that is much more Earth like conditions. So you don't need special. Electronics to survive up there. You can send fairly ordinary space electronics if you've got it on this balloon platform. And then the other thing is that Venus is nasty toxic acidic um, clouds that block our view of of the surface they they actually occur at a really high elevation so you could have your balloon floating below the clouds and then you would be able to see the surface with optical instruments very clearly
1: sometimes i I feel like we get so surface centric and that you see it on, on places like europa where we're talking about under the surface and venus is an interesting example where it's like well you know we don't need to land maybe maybe there's an alternative to landing that is better for everybody
2: well, the thing about Venus is that we've never seen most of its surface in optical wavelengths. We've only mapped it in radar. Um, and it's just a very different way of looking at a world. And I think that the scientific community would, you know, it's really hard to compare what we see on Venus with the things that we've mapped on any other terrestrial planet. And so I think it would really benefit comparative planetology to be able to look at it using normal kinds of cameras that take Pictures in in ordinary visible light, you you just can't do that from outside the atmosphere. But if you're inside the atmosphere, underneath the cloud deck, you could do it just fine. And I I couldn't wait to see that.
0: Uh, you know, I think it's interesting in looking at at your work and what the Planetary Society does. So much of it is um, really ed- educational. Of having um, not only having the news, but having this information in a way that's that's approachable and something that really. Enjoy about your writing that it is very approachable and and someone can come to it and and really take away information um, and that's something Jason and I try to do here and Jason does with his writing elsewhere. Um, I, I'm curious as someone who has been has been in this field um, a lot longer than certainly Jason or I have. Uh, what is that? What is that like of of having a, a platform like a blog or a podcast or? Or even something like Twitter to to help, uh, to help educate, to help share information, to help share discoveries. Um, how has that process been? Is 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 that a, an oddity in the scientific community, or is that something that is is you think is growing?
2: Well, I think that what. What we do, what I do, and what you do, it, it's really a translation thing, um, where the, the people that we talk to are, are perfectly capable of understanding most of, of the questions that scientists are asking and the kinds of evidence that leads them to conclusions. The, the gap has to do with jargon and, and words that mean, that have great significance to the scientists who speak them, but mean nothing or often sometimes mean the wrong thing to the public. And so with all of these different media, I think you can achieve a lot of success just looking at it that way, looking at how can I translate this highly technical language into something that um, anybody can understand, a doctor or a lawyer. You know, these are all in, uh, educated people, but they may not know what an orthocyte is. So let's let's turn that word into the bright rock that makes up most of the high elevation uh, land on the moon. And then suddenly everybody can understand what you're talking about, and then you can explain why it's important. I think these skills are um, more common than we think they are. I think the the fact that there are only a few science communicators is just that people uh, people don't spend enough time thinking about their audiences, thinking about who they're speaking to and what words we need to use in order to help them understand what we're talking about. And as long as you Think carefully about who your audience is, whether you're speaking to a rotary club or a fifth grade classroom or an astronomy club. You choose your vocabulary in order to fit the audience and then you can transmit a whole lot of information and you can transmit the same amount, uh, Mm -hmm. the same things to all those people. You just have to choose your words very carefully.
1: I think coming from our our background, both of us in in uh, doing technology stuff, it's it, it's a uh, it's, it's been a leap for both of us to to start doing space things, even though it's been uh, something we've loved for the for our lives. Um, but uh, what I've been struck by is that the 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 muscles that we use aren't that different in the sense that it it's exactly what you said it's about communicating whether it's a a technical topic about how you know computers work or it's about a technical topic about how physics works it's still uh finding that right level and and knowing your audience and trying to be able to communicate it and I, what one of the things i love about i've got a big twitter list uh, full of people uh, who talk about space on Twitter. And one of the things I love about it is there is so much good conversation about it. And I feel like um, having gone to, Stephen and I have both been to NASA social events, I feel like the scientific community has really upped its game in terms of trying to tell stories and uh, and make it clearer to people why um, why investigations are going on and why we want to do certain things or go to certain places. And I, I think maybe some of that is just that having social media and having blogs and not having to rely on just this really narrow channel of of uh, newspapers and 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 uh, TV news and things like that has opened it up but I'm just I'm constantly impressed by how much conversation now goes on um, and how many people like yourself and 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 Phil plate and I mean there are lots of other people out there who are really doing a great job of communicating this stuff um, in a way that regular people can understand.
2: Well, I think the space community is uh, among a lot of professional communities, uniquely conscious of how much we owe to the general public for the funding that goes into these space missions. These things are, are very expensive. They wouldn't happen without tax dollars. And that means that they feel an obligation to the public to give back, to explain what it is they're getting for their investment. Um And and I think it's also because most of us who are into space are into it because, gosh, the pictures are so freaking awesome. And we just want to share that feeling with as many people as possible. Um, and it's just so rewarding to do that. You, you show any picture that practically any photo that Cassini or the rovers or anybody takes, there is just when you think about where the spacecraft is and what it had to do and how many people were involved, and it's just mind-boggling, and and it's really fun to share that emotion with other people.
1: It's kind of made for the internet era. I mean, you think about these great images, and I I, I know you post you post a lot of uh, images yourself. It's like this is for blogs and and Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook and places like that. Posting these images, this incredible stuff that comes out, it's like it's gotten even better. That stuff can go viral now in a way that it wouldn't if it was just on page three of the the morning newspaper.
2: Yeah. And, and it costs nothing to multiply the number of pictures that you send out. So you just I mean, there's and there's so much more than we even see. You know, one of the reasons that I do what I do is that I discovered that all of the data that has ever been returned by any NASA mission is made public. It's sometimes it takes a, a few months before it gets out on the internet. But once it does, every single photo that every NASA mission has ever taken is on the internet. And if if you know where to look, you can go find it. And there's just way more than anybody has ever had time to play with. So there's there's a lot more out there to discuss discover
1: my desktop image on my iMac right now is the crescent pluto shot yeah. from looking back after passing by and at such high resolution it's just mind-blowing and and that's just one of the, the many images that that uh that's floating around out there it's just amazing stuff
2: Now think about just we're on the other side of pluto
1: i know i know <laughs> i know it's crazy absolutely amazing um and that's the kind of thing we need we need to get more images of that i i feel like the pluto thing uh, is going to be galvanizing. And maybe this is, maybe I'm just being Pollyanna ish here, but I feel like there's going to be, that—that that is a, a nothing. A Nothing World, a quest, the question mark, uh, you know, not yet explored on the right. stamp that now we have these crazy images from. And I would hope that that would be uh, a really great moment to say, see what we can do when we send these these ships out there. There's lots of stuff we've never looked at closely. Um, and, and it had been a while since people had gotten that real feeling of like, oh, this is a world we've never seen before. And we got it this summer.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that, because there are a lot of people from NASA headquarters who are saying things like, you know, by exploring Pluto, we have completed the initial reconnaissance of the solar system. And that just made me sick every time I heard it, because, of course, there's so many worlds that we haven't explored yet. And we actually, we space fans have a problem, because the worlds that we haven't explored yet, are by and large ones that most people haven't heard of. So for all of you out here who are listening to this, my charge to you is to start mentioning the names of these other worlds that, that we have yet to explore. Explore well. We, we need to go to Titan and Europa and Enceladus and Ganymede and Callisto and Haumea and Quawar and Ixion and Veruna. And I could keep going on and on and on. Um, and these are names that people don't know. They need to get more familiar with before people will get behind spending the cash we need to spend in order to send dedicated missions to tiny worlds like Enceladus.
1: And that Venus balloon. I want my Venus balloon. <laughs> me too <laughs> well emily thank you so much for for being on liftoff it was really awesome and like i said i i i've been reading your stuff for a long time and i i think Stephen has too and it's been really a pleasure to to get to talk to you and pick your brain about what uh what, where we should be going next and what's going on in the solar system
2: yep it's been a lot of fun thank you so much for having me and you can find all those blogs at planetary.org
0: excellent well uh Jason, I think that uh does it for this week's episode of Liftoff.
1: Yeah, super, super episode. Got a lot of news, got a lot of uh, pre-flight checklist, and then uh and then Emily. So uh pretty awesome. Uh really happy to talk to her.
0: Yeah. So you can find all of the links and things we talked about uh in your podcast app of choice, or you can check out uh them on our website at relay.fm slash liftoff slash eight. There's a contact button in there. You can send us an email with any feedback or questions. Uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason uh, is at J Snell. You can find me on Twitter at ISMH. Um, and I think that uh, I think that about does it uh, for this fortnight. So uh, talk to you next time, Jason. Yes,
1: until until fourteen days from now, everybody out there. I don't have a uh, uh, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Nope, that's Casey Kasem. Uh, we we should have some sort of uh clever uh keep looking up oh, was that jack Horkheimer? i don't even remember uh <laughs> anyway we'll see you in a couple of weeks it's good uh,
0: always good to talk space with you steven you too see you bud bye adios